so the, the comments I have prepared today are primarily on verses 1 to 4, but I also have some other stuff to, uh, if we have time, to get into the rest of chapter 3. I don't know that we'll really get beyond verse 4 and maybe touching a little bit on 5 and following. Uh, but if you look at the breakdown of verses or, or of chapter 3, uh, you notice that things are beginning to change, especially <clears throat> when you get to verse 5, where Paul is making a, a move, as it were, to... Uh, He's transitioning to the imperative. Um, and these are, I'm going to give you two words. I'm sure you've heard them before. Uh, but they'll help you a lot in reading, uh, especially Paul's epistles, uh, books like James um, and Hebrews uh, and all those things. But uh, the first word is indicative. And the second word is imperative. All right. <clears throat> indicative and imperative. So an indicative is basically like a declaration, right? A thing that is true, um, that you cannot touch, you cannot change. Um, um, where he spends the first two chapters basically, and, and really the first... Uh, four verses of chapter 3 as well, saying what is true in Christ, right? He indicates what is true. He indicates who Christ is, what Christ has done, and then he moves on to uh, the imperative, which are the commands or the implications of that, right? Uh, we've gotten into some of the implications uh, in the past, uh, in, in what we've covered here in Colossians about, you know, not having to turn to false teaching and whatnot. But here, starting in chapter 3, he begins to get more concrete, more into, like, this is what it means to live as those who have the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and you'll notice at verse 5 of chapter 3, he starts with uh, mortify, therefore. So you've got uh, what they are to not do, what they are to put to death. Then if you move down to verse 10, he uses an image to explain it, having put on the new man, right? and uh, that is because you've put on the new man, because you've put on Christ, you are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, verses 5 through 9. And then in verse 12 of chapter 3, you have what you're called to put on, right? He said put on the new man in verse 10, but here in verse 12, he's telling you what that looks like. You are the elect of God, holy and beloved, full of tender mercies, kindness, etc., etc., and uh, he calls on you to do these things. But then you notice in verse 18, where he addresses wives and husbands and children. Then he comes back to fathers in verse 21 and servants in Verse 22. Now what he's doing there when he gets to that point is he's addressing their life outside of the church. Right? Uh, he has just said in chapter 3, verse 11, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Kind of reminds you of what he says in um, Galatians where he also says there's neither male nor female. He probably brought that up in Galatians though because they were dealing with an issue about circumcision. Um, and only men could be circumcised. Uh, but here at the end of Colossians 3, he shifts kind of to the domestic sphere, right? the, the issues of calling, where uh, notice that before he gets to that point, he doesn't address anyone based on their position outside of the church. Right? Because in Christ, we all have the same obligations. But when we are living our life in the world, not to say outside of Christ, but when we're living our life outside of the church, that's where male and female remain. We talked about that some, I think it was last time. I don't believe it was in men's Bible study. Uh, but you see that in Christ, those stations are not done away with. And I don't want to teach the end of the chapter before I teach the beginning. So uh, again, indicative is the first bit of Colossians. And then imperative is the last bit. Uh, and this is basically the flow 
of the Christian life. And it's how we read the Bible, it's how we preach the Bible, and all those things, uh, where all of the imperatives, all of the commands that you give Christians come to them because they are Christians, right? So it is an indicative, uh, you are in Christ, And then we preach the Bible to you, it's taught to you, you read it and understand it in your private devotions as the imperatives, the commands for a Christian. You feel a burden and a weight for it uh, to live in a certain way because of the indicative, because you're in Christ, because those things are true. Paul follows this this, uh, layout, not just in Colossians, but also if if you want to look at Ephesians this afternoon, he does the same thing there. Uh, once he gets to chapter 4 in uh, Ephesians, he makes the transition. He kind of has a, um, an abridgment, or, or not an abridgment, but like a, uh, an excursus in the middle of Ephesians. But once he gets to chapter 4, he shifts from the imperative to the indicative. Um, okay, so Colossians 3. I'm going to read just verses 1 to 4 and then... Uh, get started here. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, or be seeking them, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection or your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Amen. All right, so let's look at verses 1 to 4. The first quote I give you there is kind of explaining, uh, as Matthew Henry explaining the move from the indicative to the imperative, but he says, uh, the apostle, having described our privileges by Christ in the former part of the epistle, so everything up to chapter 3, verse 1, and... Our discharge from the yoke of the ceremonial law, remember last time we talked about that, let no man judge you in meat or drink or anything like that. He views that as referring to the ceremonial law, as we said. He, Paul, comes here to press upon us our duty as inferred thence. So what do we do now? Though we are made free from the obligation of the ceremonial law, it does not therefore follow that we may live as we list. It's an old word for wish. We must walk the more closely with God in all the instances of evangelical obedience. Now, um, this is a, you know, addressing an issue that comes up from time to time. Uh, it's not overly common today, at least in speech, but I think it is common in our actions. Uh, that we forget that we are bound to the law of God even though we are redeemed. So many people uh, live the Christian life, um, as they would say, by the Spirit, and what they really mean is by their feelings. They don't study the Scriptures the way a Christian should. They don't devote themselves to the church. They back away from any pastor or teacher or parent or elder trying to apply the Word of God to their lives in particular. And this is something you run into, just let me give you a peep into a pastor's life in general, um, or an elder, anybody that really teaches the Bible. Everybody loves the indicatives. Not everybody loves the imperatives. Right? When you start getting concrete about what the implications are or how you are to live based on Scripture, even if you're just explaining how Scripture applies to your life, that's when people tend to get uh, a little cranky. But as Matthew Henry says, the salvation, the privileges that we have in Christ do not relax us from following the law, but instead we are to walk the more closely with God in all the instances of evangelical obedience. The opening phrase of verse 1, if you look at it, it is, I believe, it's quite profound. Um, It is the way that Paul chose to summarize what he just explained in the previous section. What is that phrase? Risen with Christ. Right? If you're risen with Christ, that's like him saying, if everything I've just described about Christ 
and those who are in Christ is true of you, then you're risen with Christ. It's like he summarizes Colossians 1 and 2 with the phrase, risen with Christ. Those who know the realities of what he's communicating, those who have heeded the bewares of uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 2, verse 8, they are those who are risen with Christ. You could also frame it as, and maybe your Bible translates it this way if you're looking at a different one, because you are risen with Christ. But I think if, the choice of that word there is good, and it captures the weightiness, I think, of what Paul is saying better and indicates a transition. This particular word points to the conditional nature of Paul's teaching. If you heed what I'm saying, that's what he's communicating to the Colossian Christians, if you listen to me, If you follow this teaching, you are risen with Christ, and therefore do this. But if you're not risen with Christ, it is because you are rejecting this teaching through me, and therefore will not be enabled to live like this. You will be missing out on seeking the things that are above where Christ is. And notice how the resurrection of Christ is mentioned at the first part of the verse, and then the ascension of Christ is mentioned at the second part of the verse, or the, the third part, depending on how your Bible orders it. Right? So if you're risen with Christ at the beginning, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, notice that he's not simply talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the ascension as well. But as Paul often does, he, uh, 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 he subsumes them into one event. The resurrection and ascension of Christ are brought together. If you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You also get this idea, if you flip in your Bible, I just want to show you this really cool verse in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 6. Where he brings the... He uses the language of resurrection, but he's talking about the ascension. Ephesians 2, chapter 6. There must be more pages between Colossians and Ephesians in y'all's Bible than there is mine. Ephesians 2, verse 6. It says, uh, you know, the whole, but God, verse 4, who's rich in mercy, etc., etc. Verse 6, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? So this imagery of resurrection language, but it's tied to the ascension in a way that Paul is explaining eternal life in Christ. And because, going back to Colossians 3, because both of those are true, resurrection and ascension, Paul directs them, he directs us, to seek those things above where Christ is. This is like saying, set your mind on Christ, right? Don't read him to say that there are things up there with Christ that you're to set your mind on. That's not what he's saying. Paul elaborates further in verse 2 when he says that they are to set their affections, is what the King James says, or mind is another way to translate that. Affections kind of uh, draws out our hearts here. Uh, but mind is another way to translate it as well. Uh, it's basically saying to set not just your body, but your inward person, all of your thoughts and desires towards heaven, because Christ is no longer on the earth. He's at the right hand of God, sitting. Seek those things, or seek Him, and set your affections there as well. I want you to listen to... Uh, Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read it. If you want to turn there, you can, but you can also just write it down and look at it later. But listen to Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. He says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. We could also say, For they that are after the earth, to use Colossians language, are those who mind the things of the earth. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally or earthly minded, Romans 8, 6, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So he's drawing this stark contrast about the way that our minds and affections and hearts 
work. And because Christ is in heaven, he says that's where our life is. He says when Christ appears, our life appears. That's where we are to fully set our persons, right? Our bodies and our actions where we live heavenly lives, as it were, uh, but also our hearts and our minds. Uh, the next quote you have on your handout is from uh, this is the next one. Yeah, G.K. Beale is a short one. He says, They are to seek the things above in heaven because their hope is laid up in heaven. Chapter 1, verse 5. Christ's reconciliation of them. So Christ has reconciled them. And it has affected even heaven. And their Lord, Christ, has his dwelling in heaven. So before the accomplishing of Christ's work, before you were in Christ, you were unable to seek the things above, but you would have also had no desire to do so. But Christ has become your life. You have been reconciled to God through Christ, and it has changed your status, not just on earth, but in heaven. And because of that, your life is in heaven, in a sense. Paul even goes on to say, in verse 3, you are dead. Right? Now, and he's not saying dead in sin there. Right? He's talking about another thing. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's look at this next quote, another one from G.K. Bill. He says, as contended earlier, so referring back to what Paul's already said, Paul wants to assert that the readers have all they need of the fullness of Christ's presence in the heavenly sanctuary. Let me take a step back here and kind of explain what he's getting at here. Remember... The false teaching had to do with uh, these Jewish rituals and these other things related to angels. And what they were doing was putting these additional steps in front of those Christians in Colossae and saying that if you really want to draw near to God, if you really want to be welcomed into God's worship, you also need to do these things. And that's what makes it very similar to the book of Galatians. But what Beale is drawing out here is saying that the fullness of Christ's presence is in the heavenly sanctuary, and what he goes on to say is, so is yours. Right? Nothing needs to be added. So let's continue the quote. He says, they have this fullness since they already participate in heaven by being in Christ, who resides in heaven. The false teachers are contending that their approach to get to the heavenly temple or their approach to be saved, ultimately is what that means, is something that can be added to their faith in order to enhance the fullness of God's presence. But Paul says that if you are in Christ, you have already ascended to heaven's temple in him, since one cannot be in the true heavenly sanctuary without being in Christ. And again, that kind of refers back to Ephesians 2.6. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's because it's true of Christ. If you're in Christ, it's true of you. You don't need all this other stuff. Right? It's a distraction, and it's ultimately dangerous. But notice the stress that Paul places on our life being in Christ in verse 3. already hinted at it. It is as if we no longer live. Maybe this calls to verse of mind in Galatians as well. He says, for... Ye, you, the plurality, the congregation, you are all dead. Don't seek things on earth because you've died to them. You are dead yourself. The old you has died. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. What's the verse that I'm thinking of in Galatians? I'm not asking you to read my mind. I'm just asking you to know your Bible. Yes, Steve, I read your lips and kind of sort of heard you. 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. I died when he died. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. All right, that's Galatians 2.20. Same thing Paul is saying, but in different language here in Colossians. Our next quote, also from Matthew Henry. He says, The new man has its livelihood thence, meaning 
The new man draws his life from heaven. It is born and nourished from above. And the perfection of its life is reserved for that state. He's explaining what it means for it to be hidden with Christ in God. It is hid with Christ, not hid from us only in point of secrecy, but hid for us, denoting security. We'll explain that now, but notice what he's saying. That because our new man is a heavenly man, therefore our new life is a heavenly life. We are, as Jesus says in John 3, some Bibles have this as an alternate translation when he's talking to Nicodemus, being born again. It also in one place says born from above, right? That heavenly birth that takes place. Paul's drawing on this idea. But we are not only born from above, we are nourished from above. Our life is above and comes to us by the Spirit. The perfection of it is reserved for the life to come, yes, but we still participate in it. And it's hidden for us um, until that time. We'll get to that in just a second. But notice the next quote from John Davenant. He connects it. uh, No, this is not that quote. He does something with baptism that we might get to in a minute. But here he says, the spiritual life of the saints is hid. First, so he's going to explain. uh, Here you have in verse 3, Colossians 3, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. What a bizarre phrase, right? He's going to explain it here. The first, as it relates to, is evil. Right? For the world does not discover or understand or uncover anything spiritual in the children of God, but accounts them the most despicable, foolish, and miserable, miserable beings. Right? If your life is in heaven and it's hidden, he's saying that in some sense that applies to the fact that it's hidden from unbelievers. They won't understand it. And they'll look on you as those who mind the things of the earth and say, you're despicable, you're foolish, and you're miserable. Why do you live this way? The answer, my life is in heaven. The second thing he says, the spiritual life of the saints and the faithful is hid from themselves, but partly, not entirely. I say it is in some measure hid because they themselves do not always clearly perceive the life of grace in them. That's quite a pastoral note. Um, For he's, again, drawing out what it means for our life to be hidden with Christ in God. And notice that Henry even hints at another thing that we'll get to in a second. Um, But part of the hiddenness, it is also hidden from us. right? Not in a full sense. Because we participate in it, we partake of it, we grow in the Spirit, we are renewed after the image of Christ by the Spirit. But the fullness of it is not known to us in this life, is it? And even there are times when we have difficulties spiritually, where it can feel very much hidden because of our sin, because of our unbelief, something creeping into our lives that is drawing us back to mind earthly things. And in that sense... Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, But verse 4, I'm going to draw on what Henry says, seems to involve the place at which the hiddenness of that life will end. Meaning, in verse 4, when he begins to talk about the second coming of Christ, he also draws on our life. And notice he doesn't say hidden there, but in verse 4 he says appears. So he's saying there's this transition all right, so whatever is hidden in Christ will be revealed, and it explains the hiddenness. Our life, Christ, shall appear. Our life shall appear. Christ shall appear. Those two things go together. It will no longer be hidden when he returns. Even in the intermediate state, our life remains to be in some way hidden with Christ and God because only our souls go to glory in the intermediate state. But when Christ comes again, it will fully be revealed. That is to say, echoing Matthew Henry, this hiddenness is a protection and a security. That is to say, those who are in Christ are protected unto the last day when the life, which is Christ, will be revealed. He is life itself, and he cannot die. He is in God, and we are in God with him. He keeps us there in himself, 
And at the last day, that life will burst forth as it never has before. For then, he says, shall ye also appear with him in glory. Notice this again. He, if you remember some of the stuff we covered earlier in Colossians about how these things have been hidden but yet revealed in Christ, that they were hidden to the ages past and then they are revealed. He's drawing on this same idea here as it respects our salvation. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 26, it says, um, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So what is it that was hidden? Well, if we looked at the broader context, we'd see, like we covered when we were there, the work that God was doing in Christ and bringing the world to salvation, not just the Jews. So that mystery has been revealed, but there's yet another mystery. It is the fullness of our salvation. And until that last day, until Christ, who is our life, appears... It will remain hidden in some sense. But when he appears, we'll be with him in glory. Notice just the, um, like the absolute nature of what Paul is saying. Verse 3, you are dead. Right? You have no life outside of Christ. Your life, whatever it is, is actually hidden with Christ in God. Right? I think Paul, when he speaks of... Uh, um, counting everything as rubbish compared to knowing Christ in Philippians. The same idea is in play here. Comparing his old self to his new self. Right? That the old self no longer matters. Right? That the redemption in Christ is so full, the newness of life in Christ is so thorough and absolute that it is as if your old man is dead and no longer lives because your life It's so abundantly found in Christ that you can say Christ is your life. Notice he doesn't say in verse 4, when Christ who is our way of living, though that's true, when Christ who is our, or who has given us eternal life. He says when Christ who is our life. What an absolute statement. You have no life as a Christian outside of the Lord Jesus. And there's none to pursue. Uh, On our next quote here, uh, kind of a longer one from um, Douglas Moo. It says, His readers have died, not physically, of course, but spiritually. Specifically, this brief assertion is a reminder of what he said in chapter 2, verse 20. You died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. For the purposes of his polemic, that's where he's critiquing the false teachers. For the purposes of his polemic with the false teachers, Paul highlights our separation from these powers. But we can infer that Paul would also have in view our deliverance from sin and the bondage of the law, powers that he elsewhere claims we have died to. As we've noted... The believer's union with Christ in death, of verse 20, chapter 2. Burial, verse 12, chapter 2. And resurrection, verse 12 and verse 13 of chapter 2, provides the Colossians with the spiritual security that they were craving, including especially forgiveness and protection from evil spiritual Powers. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are the essential moments of the climactic salvation historical drama. And they mark the transition from the old era to the new. By believing in Christ, the Colossians have identified with Christ in these events and so experience all the benefits that they confer. He draws out something there uh, up a little bit when he talks about protection from uh, evil spiritual powers. It's something that we haven't really talked about, I think, uh, as it relates to this false teaching. They weren't, you know, as Paul says in some places that, you know, we wage war, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and all those things. So you could argue that 
what they were doing was amplifying on that teaching, right? If they were afraid, as Mu seems to hint at, of these evil spiritual powers, then these false teachers were drawing from something that was true, that we are at war with evil spiritual powers. Paul says so. Um, uh, I know he says it in, I think it's in Ephesians, uh, that we do war, we do battle with, not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. So for them to have this rest is not just rest from error, but it's also rest from a false fear, right? Um, And I think this is an important thing to draw out for us and think about how we're tempted to view false teaching because false teaching can very often address a real issue in our minds, right? Um, You know, fill in the blank with whatever false teaching you want to think of. Like, uh, we could just apply it to something very sinful like uh, sexual issues um, where people uh, develop this justification for sexual sin in their life. But to be honest, right, uh, sexual sin comes because of a, a natural need or a natural desire, a true thing that exists in the person. And what they do, if they don't want to be found in Christ and they want to turn away from the truth, is they begin to embrace an error that allows them to assuage that feeling. Right? So the same thing is in view here. Right? In Colossians, somehow these false teachers had persuaded these people, not just that you're at war with these principalities and powers, but that you should worry about it. Right? That these evil spiritual powers are maybe similar in power to Christ. That if you would turn to the good spiritual powers, then you could really get to Christ. Then you could really get to heaven. But Paul's saying none of those things are true. Whatever was true of those evil spiritual powers, they have been defeated through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and they're yours in him. And this section, it it prepares the Colossians and us for, as we hinted at earlier, the the calls to more explicit action in verses 5 to 11. So if you want to look there, we'll get into that for just a moment. In verses 5 to 11... Mortify, therefore, or therefore mortify. So because of everything he's just said, yes, all the way up to chapter 2, but especially chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, mortify, kill is what that means. Put to death your members which are upon the earth, right? The, The parts of your body or the remaining affections, as it were, that remain on the earth. Because this is the battle... For the Christian and the Christian life, we're being drawn up to heaven to participate in life in Christ by the Spirit, but we are still sinners. And it's like a tug of war, as it were, between heaven and earth. We're being pulled by the Spirit and pulled by the flesh. Um, trying to remember where I read it recently. God, what was it? I think it was Edward Lee. Uh, yeah. This contemporary of the Westminster Divines, um, he was he wrote a lot, uh, but I was reading it for this class that I'm taking right now, and in the section I was reading, he was explaining the difference in, between sanctification and justification, um, and you know you think about it, the way that Paul describes salvation sometimes, you might walk away from it saying, then why do I have to deal with sin? Well, Edward Lee gave this very pastoral answer to explain why sin remains even in those who are fully justified in Christ. And he said, (laughs) if it didn't remain, we would have no use for Christ in this life. We would have no desire for him because everything would already be finished. There would be no point in living, right? And this tension that Paul is getting at, right, it's, it's all in that. Right? Because all this is true, because you are in Christ, because you're risen with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God, 
Put to death those things. Right? He begins to list them. Fornication. They are very much on the earth. That means that they are passing away. They are part of that old man, the nature that is dead. Fornication. Right? Uncleanness. Inordinate affection. If you have the King James, you get a real fun word here. Evil concupiscence. Covetousness, which is idolatry. We'll get more into these terms uh, next week, Lord willing. But he says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. How could you who have been risen with Christ, how could you who uh, have your life hidden with Christ in God do these things? These things bring about the wrath of God. These things are are markers of the children of disobedience, not those who have been risen with Christ and have their life hidden with Him. He says in verse 7, in which ye also walk sometime, meaning kind of like Ephesians 2, right? You were dead with them when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these. He goes on, like a longer list. Anger, wrath, malice. Blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. He continues to address the mouth or the speech. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. So your old man is of the earth. Don't set your mind there. Put those things to death. Focus on the new man, which is your life, which is Christ himself, which is ultimately what that means, not just put on this ethereal cloak, as it were, but put on Christ, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Then he gets into there being neither Jew nor Greek, speaking of the heavenly realities, but, is, but he says Christ is all and in all at verse 11. Verse 11, it kind of serves as a bridge, as it were. Connecting back to the false teaching mentioned specifically in chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, I talked about it earlier for just a moment. Uh, Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or respect of any holy day or the new moon or Sabbaths. All those things, right? So don't let anyone judge you in Christ based on the old ways of life, the ways under Moses, the ceremonial law. But here... In verse 11, he reminds them, In this life that you now have in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Then the positive commands in verses 12 to 17. So uh, very usefully and pastorally, Paul doesn't just tell you to stop doing something. He tells you what to start doing. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, tender mercies, affections, all those things, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering or patience, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye, echoing the teaching of Christ of the need to forgive those who have sinned against you. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, bond of love, or put on love. What other passage of Paul does this make you think of? 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. Notice he doesn't say put on faith or put on hope. But I think because he's drawing them so much to their heavenly life, and he's trying to draw the emphasis so uh, firmly towards heavenly life that he doesn't even draw them towards faith and hope which pass away. But he draws them to love. The greatest of these is love, faith, and hope. They will perish because we'll see him when our life, who is Christ, appears. But put on love, which is the bond of perfectness, perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body. Then, verse 16, telling them what to replace their filthy speech with, 
psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and all those things. Notice when he, uh, this is just by way of note, uh, in verse 18, he begins to focus on the various callings in life that exist in nature. Notice the things that these categories exist whether someone is in Christ or not. Right? These are temporary things. These are earthly things. They're not sinful things, but they're also not heavenly things in the way that Paul is speaking of. Right? You will not be a wife, a husband, a child, a father, or a servant in that sense in heaven. Right? You will simply be a child of God in the heavenly sense. But when he addresses these, he's addressing these natural vocations, if you want to call them that. But notice what he does. He goes, wives, husbands, children, fathers, and servants. What's missing? Say again. Mothers, right? What else? Masters. Right? He tells the servants how to behave towards their masters, but not the masters how to behave towards their servants. I don't think there's any tremendous implication to this. Uh, but I, maybe it's possible that in Colossae, none of the people in the church had servants. Right? Maybe all at this time, I'm not saying they never did, or that no one was ever saved who had servants in that time, but it's just an interesting thing that Paul, when he always goes through these lists, he addresses both, but maybe here, he, uh, they only had servants in the church at the time. It's you know, possible. Uh, I have a couple quotes that we can go through, but I kind of put them as extra, and we have about five minutes left. Any questions, uh, comments? Bible study with songs. Right, right. But it's like, that's not what it is. We're participating in heaven. Heaven is bleeding down onto earth. And we're doing it in such ways, he says in Ephesians 2, to de- as a demonstration to the principalities. But we're also doing it in a way as a demonstration to those who are fleshly around us. And they don't understand it. But we are bringing heaven to earth in a way that brings Christ's presence our community now that we don't we don't understand it at all like we don't I don't but it's a truth nonetheless and if you talk about a realized eschatology I mean that's there's a lot going on when we gather to worship there's a lot going on when we live our lives that we don't even like I don't know I just think we try to rationalize things too much instead of just living in the reality of you know heaven is Yeah, um, you got me thinking about uh, another thing that I think that we struggle with. And it's based on what Paul says about our life is Christ. Like right now, not our life will be Christ, but is at the present moment. Um, And of course, will be in the future even more so. But if your life is Christ right now, Christ is at the right hand of God. And that everything else 
you're supposed to mortify that's, that's sinful, that in a sense won't go with you to heaven, more or less. That means that your heavenly life is more real than your earthly life. It's more actually your life than your earthly life. And this is something that is really hard to grasp. But we get so focused on the earthly that we can't take the heavenly or the spiritual, the unseen things seriously. But Paul is saying the unseen things are your life. That is where you literally, although spiritually and unseen at this time, live right now. He doesn't say your life is hidden with Christ in the gathered worship of the church. Right? Because that is, it is heavenly, but it is also in a sense earthly. Right? Because we do it here in our human bodies. We're not physically in heaven the way we will be one day. Well, he draws on this idea like this can really transform like the way you deal with everything. Right? It can bring about this putting to death because not just that you realize those things are temporary, but they have no hold on you. Right? Those evil desires, those temptations, those ways of living, those trivial things doesn't mean that we don't still live here in some sense. We do, and Paul tells us how to live here. But this life is so real and so present that I think we could, you know, Paul, Paul says, you are dead, and those things that are dead, your old man, let them stay dead because your life is hid with Christ in God. Christ is your life. You will appear with him in glory one day, but... Um, I will address this first quote here, uh, That I, the next one. There might be a little dash between the other ones and this one. It was because these are kind of extra. But uh, Calvin says this, uh, Paul here exhorts the Colossians to meditation upon the heavenly life. And what, as to his opponents, they were desirous to retain their childish Rudiments, and he's drawing that word from Colossians 2, the rudiments of the world, the elements of the world. This doctrine, therefore, makes the ceremonies to be the more lightly esteemed. So he's talking about the false teaching. But notice, that again, the beginning of it. He exhorts the Colossians to meditation upon the heavenly life. Notice he doesn't just say study, thought, but meditate. We had a, a men's group several months ago, it was last year, uh, where... Pastor Matt came and spoke to us, and he talked to us about meditation. Um, and I, in some way, when I talked about leisure uh, the last time at men's breakfast, it was kind of drawing on the same idea. Um, but this is a thing that uh, we have to begin to practice again. Uh, our world uh, tells us to speed up so much. I mean, how often... Do you read your Bible? You begin with a prayer, you read your Bible, you close with a prayer, you close it and you're done, and you move on to the rest of the day. Right? Meditation is an important thing. And you're not going to grasp any benefit from the heavenly life if you don't slow down and take these things in. I mean, I can explain to you what it means for your life to be hidden with Christ and God, but where is that really known? It's known in your heart through meditation and pondering on the things of the Spirit. Right? Those who think on these things. I don't, I don't think it's uh, any uh, coincidence that Paul says to set your mind on the things above. Like You can't just do that where you flip a switch. right? Because just as easy as you flip it on, you're going to flip it off. Or something's going to turn it off. Like something's going to draw you back to the earth. It has to be a state of mind. Meditation enables us to enter into that, where we contemplate the realities of what the, uh, our salvation is, and we, you know, we do it in worship. Right? When you, uh, this is one one of the reasons that having uh, not necessarily long periods of silence, but silence in the service. Right? Where the pastor is not just filling the word, filling the air with words, 
where there's not always something being said, right? It's just a, you know, a small picture of what we can do in our own lives. So I would encourage you uh, to take time in your Bible reading. It's hard, of course, when you have children. This is one reason to get up early uh, or go to bed late or you can have that quiet time. Wait till Mr. Hugh goes to bed. Right? Then you can get some alone time. Huh. <laughs> uh, but seriously, just take some moments. Uh, set a timer. Uh, something. Right? You, you'd be surprised. Because uh, I'll be honest with you, this is meditation is a lot of what preparing to preach is. I don't just sit around and read books all day and write notes. I meditate on the passage. I pray over it. I read some, but I'm not just sitting there copying notes from people. I'm in a conversation, as it were, with the Spirit, submitting to God's leadership. And you can do the same thing. Even though you don't prepare sermons necessarily, you have that that benefit of setting your mind on the things above. And the way to really do it is, is again, to meditate, and it will be in the effect thing. So anything quick, lastly, finally? Yeah, there's a, a weird implication in Paul saying that, that you are dead, but also you have to mortify that which is dead, right? Um, it's, it's like it's on its last limb, as it were, right? That almost like if it still lives, it's because you give it life, right? but you're to continue to put it to death, declaring that state over it. You're dead, you're dead. I don't have to serve you, so... Anyway, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for...